All right, Danny's going to come up and, and uh, read our passage for this morning. If you want to grab your Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 13. It's page 948, if you want to look there. One that's uh, good for this time. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in, in would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Good morning, Edgewater. How are we? Doing good? How many of you guys are thankful for Jesus' work in your life this morning? How many of you say amen to that? Amen. Yeah, man. It, it, is, it is good to come to, together and really be reminded of, of his faithfulness and just know that the work that he's, again, begun, he's going to continue it even in our society. So... But this morning, we're going to be talking about um, how the gospel shapes and transforms our view of government and even how we view everyone else. So before uh, we, we go um, and get ourselves uh, knee deep, waist deep, and even chest deep into Romans 13, I want to tell you that I am really uh, thankful myself for Jesus' transforming work in my life in this particular area. I remember um, about maybe 14 years ago, 15 years ago, um, I, was, um, I was granted the blessing of being a United States resident. And uh, I remember uh, being born in Venezuela um, and coming here at an early age, uh, not being able to experience the blessing of being able to submit once I kicked into adulthood because... It's a long process, immigration, all that. Um, we won't get into the system. But of not being able to experience the fullness of Romans chapter 13 until, uh, until later on in my marriage, and God opened up the doors for that. And so I want to tell you this morning, you know, when, 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 when God speaks of government um, and God speaks of, of those that he's placed next to us, it's so that we might experience his goodness. I remember uh, even through my time of, of just looking to uh, be able to fulfill uh, a Romans 13, um, I remember just being uneasy. And even though I was a teenager and some things were out of my control, I remember how the church stepped in. I remember how the church cared for me. I remember how certain men in the church became my father's since I was separated from him. I remember how many women supported my mother who was single. 
And I remember this one time where, and I remember this as yesterday, uh, the youth group was going to Disney World. And they were going to have a tremendous time. Everybody was excited. But um, for some odd reason, I think part of it was financially, the other part of it was just insurance. As an immigrant, you're not able to have insurance back then. I wasn't able to go. And I remember the amount of support that I received from the church even throughout that time as someone who wanted to honor God but was caught between a rock and a hard place. So this morning, how does the gospel shape how we view the government, shape how we view one another, and even those in our world? We, um, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit. Romans chapter 1, uh, all the way up to 11. You remember, uh, this is what the gospel is, right? That's what we've been studying. Uh, Paul saying, listen, the gospel surrounds the person of Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection. And this, when you believe it and you receive it, begins to really alternate and change how... You view life. Why? Because you're given a brand new heart. We're given a brand new mind. And so now we're able to actually experience what the gospel does. And we see that in chapters 12 through 15 of Romans. Jesus' work not only saves us from our very own sins, but also enables us to live for him even in the toughest predicaments. It changes the way we relate to God and submit to God. We saw that in verses 1 through 2, in that it, it now propels us, it, it catapults us to, to, because of the work Jesus has done for us, something that we can never do ourselves, now we can live our lives as living sacrifices to Him, everything that we are. Not only that, but it changes the way we relate to others, to one another, and even to our enemies with genuine love, not selfishness. So love actually becomes the birthmark of our faith. People are able to tell that we have been changed by Jesus because of something that distinguishes us from everyone else, and that is our love, our birthmark. I like it the way that, um, that Bill expressed it last week. He said, the gospel changes what we believe and how we act on what we believe. So we're not only saved to bring glory to God, but, and thank for him, but how does that affect how we radiate Jesus to others? So the first thing I'm going to invite you to do is, let's look at verses 1 through 7, and let's see how the gospel shapes our view of government. Now I'll tell you right now, I'm going to put this in a parenthetical statement. We're not going to solve every question or answer every question that we have about how the government should be run. Uh, that's not the purpose of our time together. And I even want to encourage you to, as we read, not think of the U.S. government, but think of the original audience that this is being written to and think of how you would respond to that 
government. So, with that in mind, let's see how the gospel relates to the government. Romans 1 through 7, let's go ahead and read it again. Uh, chapter 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive this approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The first thing that the gospel enables us to do when it comes to the government, church, is that it enables us to submit. It enables us to submit. It enables us to live at peace as long as it's up to us, to the government and civil authorities. Now, before we uh, expand on verses 1 and 2, maybe there are some who would say, you know what, but wait a second. Aren't we supposed to not be of this world? I mean, Paul, didn't you just tell the church in chapter 12, uh, verse 1 and 2, that, that we're supposed to not be conformed to the pattern of this world? So aren't we supposed to stick out? I mean, isn't our citizenship in heaven? Well, there's two reasons why Paul brings up government, and it may seem rather odd to you, but when we look at it in light to the context, and perhaps even historically, it might begin to make more sense. The contextual reason is that Paul is really fleshing out the previous chapter, especially verses 18 through 21. He's fleshing out for us what submitting to God looks like and what loving others, even our neighbors, looks like. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So here Paul is, is tying contextually Romans chapter 12 and saying this is how you put flesh on that with the Roman Empire. But then there's also a historical reason. About five years prior to Paul writing this letter to the church in Rome, there was something that occurred in Rome. 
There was a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila who were proclaiming Christ. And well, that did not sit well with the emperor Claudius. And so they were expelled. And not only them, but according to chapter 18 of Acts, they were expelled along with some other Jewish believers. So here Paul's saying, listen, I want you to have perspective as to what this means of, of living for God and loving others when it comes to your government, the Roman Empire. Even though it's an oppressive form of government, even though it's pagan at its core, you need to submit. And you need to do it because it's fleshing out a love for them. The gospel calls us to submit to governing authorities. And here we see two reasons why. One, because if we really believe the gospel in Jesus Christ is all we need, then submitting to even an oppressive government is a form of faith. It's a form of saying, Jesus holds me safe. Jesus holds me secure. He is all I need. I can therefore, because I believe in that, trust that his mandate is good for me. Now notice here in these verses that he's asking us to submit to God. So this means that we're not to submit to an ideology. He's not asking us to submit to a political person. He's not even asking us to submit to a particular law that if passed would change people. No, he is proclaiming even in the submission to government the gospel. And saying as you submit to God, you are trusting that the place where he's placed you at, believer in Rome, is good not only for you, but even good for that place, for that state. God has instituted governing authorities, just like he instituted marriage in the church and has given it authority to exercise. So when we submit, we're trusting God, his character, and his sovereign plan. Politics is not God. God is over politics. But when we resist, according to these verses, we're resisting against God and against his sovereign rule. Politics in person, don't be deceived though, are not outside of God's realm of control. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, it is God, he says, who changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 15, God says of himself, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. So church, what does this mean? That if we take God at his word, and we place our faith in his redemptive plan that it's good, we don't have to panic come November. And I'm not telling you to vote for one particular person. I'm just telling you, keep your eyes on Jesus and don't panic. Pray. Pray. Pray for our country. Pray for those who are running into office. 
Pray for the laws that are being passed. Pray for the people whose laws those affect. Pray, and that may people see the church's heart of love towards all, those who are being oppressed and those who are doing the oppressing. But should we submit even when we live under uh, an evil regime? <laughs> Come on, Paul. <laughs> Haven't you seen how bad the Romans can be? <laughs> yes, but God is still under control. Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed Jerusalem, God says of him, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Who's in control? Nebuchadnezzar? No, God is. Pilate, when he wrongfully convicted Jesus, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And, 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 and Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And then you know what's interesting is that Jesus gives us an example. So he's not only our enabler, he's our example. And Jesus trusted his father's redemptive plan even when it involved the corrupt Roman government. And not only did he trust it, but he modeled it. He modeled that trust as he, in a way, submitted to the government as he went to the cross for us. Yes, he was ultimately submitting to God, the Father, and his agenda, his plan. But he was, in a way, submitting to Pilate's authority as he went to the cross. Look at how Peter describes the gospel-centered attitude towards government in the midst of strong persecution, one that is led by faith and not by one's own doing but by faith in what God has done for us. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, there's a connection between submission and faith-based action. Live as people who are free. Your freedom doesn't depend on the government. You are free. You're declared free because of what Jesus has done. And not by using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And honor the emperor. Now, we need to say there are times when civil disobedience is the Christian duty. Now, we're not negating all that God has said, but there is a time when our disobedience, it's actually a duty. It's a faith-based, gospel-centered duty. And the biblical principle is this. If the state supports what God forbids, in church, we submit. 
But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. I like the way Tim Keller puts it in his commentary for Romans. It says in Romans 13, Paul says that the Christian is required to submit. And he was talking of a very non-Christian government. The default position of the Christian is to obey the government even when those authorities disobey God's word. Christians are not to undermine a government which supports disobedience to God. But even in these verses, there are hints Paul is not given an absolute rule. The authorities are God's servants, quote-unquote, verse 6. And obedience to authorities does not trump obedience to God. So it is right to courageously, yet respectfully, disobey and oppose civil authority when it requires disobedience to God. And we see examples of that. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before a 90-foot statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, and they were told, bow down and worship this king. What did they do? Say, no way, Jose. We got a higher king. We got a higher king. And they were taken, when they were taken to the furnace, <laughs> who was there with them as they remained by faith, faithful to the Lord? It was a faithful God, Jesus Christ himself. We also see that in the story of the apostles. As they were sharing Jesus in Acts chapter 5, they were taken before the council, you remember? And the council said, didn't we tell you to stop proclaiming Jesus? We told you that needs to stop around here. We don't do that. You need to shut your mouth. What did they say? <laughs> we serve who? We serve God rather than men. So we submit to government because it's an act of faith. The gospel allows us to live out our faith in how we submit. Even that's an act of love. But we also submit because there's wisdom in submission. We see that here. We read verses 3 through 7. It is wise to submit to government because it is the government's function as it should to reward those who are doing good and to punish those who are bad. That is what God instituted the government should work at. That's how it should function. And as we live with a clear conscience, the gospel of Christ is not tarnished. Our honest lives, ones that are not filled with fear, driven by fear, but a clear conscience, resting on what Christ has done for us, is able to then even witness be a witness of what Christ is doing in us. That's a form of wisdom. So what does trusting in the gospel and submitting to government look like for us? Paul's saying, well, you got taxes? <laughs> and back then, these believers, our brothers and sisters, were heavily, heavily taxed. He says, pay your taxes. You got debt? Pay your debt. Honor? Is there a certain honor you need to give without fudging on the honor you give to God? And give that honor 
pay respect. Those are signs of not only submitting, but also loving. So the gospel shapes not only how we view our government, but it also shapes how we love our neighbors. And that's in verses 8 through 10. Why? Because grace receivers are big grace dispensers. Those who have received much will give much. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. It says here, we owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summoned up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfilling of the law. So what's the connection here between verse 7 and verse 8, Paul? I mean, you know, you know, here we're talking about owing. You know, yes, you know, we, you know, we got to, you know, pay our taxes. You know, we got to pay our, 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 our debt, you know, respect. But, but what's up with this owing now in verse 8? Owe no one anything except love. Well, Paul here is transitioning for the believer the idea of in the same way that you pay, that you that you seek to make right civil manners, we owe the same way the love that God has given us to our neighbors. We owe them our love. There are several questions I want us to consider as we, um, as we couch this, because this could be kind of tricky. You may be asking yourself, well, who's the neighbor? You know, is it, is it the paletero that's ringing his, his bell right now? Is that our neighbor? Is it the person sitting next to me? Is it just my family? Is it the globe? Everyone who lives in the world? I mean, where do we land on this, right? Well, here, the scriptures tell us that our neighbor includes each other. Those who have trusted in Christ and are part of the church, those are part of our neighbors. He says that here, love each other. But this term gives us a picture of a broader people group. Because he says, owe no one anything. And he's speaking of everyone that's in need. How do we know it's everyone who's in need? Because the same question or the same idea, you remember who, who pitched that? It was, it was a lawyer who came up to Jesus, and he wanted to justify himself in Luke chapter 10. And, and, and as he's seeking to justify himself with the law, Jesus says, hey, listen, it's all about loving God and loving your neighbor, so let me show you how that fleshes out. And he tells them the story of a good Samaritan. A good Samaritan who takes care of, of someone who happened to be a Jew, was in need, was distraught at the side of a road. Giving a picture of all of us. 
giving a picture of humanity and giving a picture of himself, how he, as a good shepherd, is the one, he, as the good Samaritan, is the one that meets our needs. So who is our neighbor? All of us. All, because we are all needy. To the one who is a child of God, to the one who doesn't know God, we're all in need of Jesus constantly. We're all in need of grace. And how can our loving others be considered a debt then? I mean, what have they done for us, right? Wait a second, isn't a debt something that you pay back to someone because they've given you something? So you give me Something I say, well, you know, I feel indebted now to give you something in return. Maybe, maybe it's a birthday party. You know, you, you know, someone gave you something for your birthday, and so now you feel indebted to give something back to them when comes their birthday party. I mean, is, is that how this functions here? How about, how are we supposed to be in debt to our neighbors who we don't even know? We have no idea who they are. And to stretch this further, why is love being correlated with debt. Why is love being correlated with debt? Well, the answer is in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. And we see here Paul saying that he is under debt. He is under obligation. And it's to do what? Both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul felt indebted to people, to those in Rome who he did not know to preach Jesus to them. So where did this come from? Well, in Romans 1.5, if we backtrack a little bit more, he says it came from the grace that Jesus gave him. Look at this. Speaks of Jesus' grace over his life through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In other words, he's saying, I, I feel obligated. I feel like I owe those who, who, who I'm writing this letter to and, and everyone whom these words will reach. I am indebted to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because I've been impacted by the gospel. Because it has affected me. And so what comes out is literally a pen. And on a scroll, I am writing this. The gospel affects what we write. The gospel affects what we communicate. The gospel affects how we radiate our love to people that we don't even know. And who are unlike us. But someone may ask, but wait, but... but but Jesus loved him. Jesus showed him grace. Isn't he indebted to Jesus? I mean, that would make sense, right? It, it, it is Jesus who bestowed this grace and gave him the calling to be an apostle. Yes, but there's nothing we can do to repay Jesus for all the grace and all the work he did for us at the cross while we we're undeserving sinners. There's nothing. As a matter of fact, brother and sister, 
the further we walk down with Jesus and we experience more and more and more of his grace every single minute, every single hour, every single day of our lives, the more and more we're indebted to Jesus. But there's nothing we can do to pay him back. So what does Jesus say? Matthew 10, freely you have been given. Listen, don't pay me back. Just freely give. You've been blessed so that you can bless others. So what does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? I mean, how does the gospel affect how we love our neighbors? I mean, Wait a second, does this mean that I'm, 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 I'm supposed to love other people once I am satisfied and fulfilled myself? I mean, it, it tells us here that part of the law in Leviticus 19.18, it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I guess I need to love myself first before I love my neighbor. Not quite. Not quite. Stick with me. Paul and Moses... Okay, stick with me. Paul and Moses knew that we have an innate desire to love ourselves. They knew that they they know that we we place ourselves at the core of our world. And we see that fleshed out with the sons of Zebedee. I mean, we are all over the sons of Zebedee. Okay, when Jesus tells them, listen, I'm gonna be dying soon. I'm gonna be crucified soon. And they're like, you know what, Jesus? Can we sit at your right and your left? When you go up in glory? Really? (laughs) And what does Jesus tell them? He shows them what loving them looks like. He He shows them what loving them looks like. Paul and Moses don't condemn that desire. Rather, in the same way we pursue those desires for ourselves, The gospel propels us to something greater. And it helps us, it enables us to pursue those same desires for others. So we long for happiness. Love your neighbor as yourself means long for that happiness in others. You long to be fulfilled. You long to have meaning in life. The gospel calls us to something greater. Long for that for your neighbor. Long for that for those who live right around the corner, for the immigrant, for those who who, who don't think like you, who don't have a different lifestyle. Long for that. Long for that for them. This teaching is seen as Paul speaks to the husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, in the same way husbands should love their wives, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I really like what John Piper, um, in his message uh, of May 7th, 1995, titled, Love Your Neighbor as Yourself, said. He said, as you love yourself... So love your neighbor, which means as you long for food when you're hungry, so long to feed your neighbor when he is hungry. 
As you long for nice clothes for yourself, so long for nice clothes for your neighbor. As you work for a comfortable place to live, so desire a comfortable place to live for your neighbor. As you seek to save and secure from calamity and violence, so seek comfort and security for your neighbor. As you seek friends for yourself, so be a friend to your neighbor. As you want your life to count and be significant, so desire that same significance for your neighbor. As work to make good grades yourself, so work to help your neighbor make good grades. And so you look to be welcomed into a strange company, so welcome your neighbor into a strange company. As you were to do that, men would do to you. Do so to them. In other words, make yourself seeking the measure of your self-giving. Now, you may be wondering, too, though, as I was reading this, I'm saying, okay, well, how does this line up with what Jesus tells us, right? You remember in, 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 in John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples um, to love others as he's loved them. So, like, how does this go? I, you know, are, are we supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, or are we supposed to love our neighbors and others as Jesus loved us? Like, which one goes? But it's interesting that Jesus couples these two. Jesus couples these two. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new command, he's speaking to his disciples, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you all start to love one another. And as he continues this dialogue with his disciples in John chapter 15, he puts these two together. And in verses 12 through 16, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, as someone laid down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. What's happening here? Loving our neighbor as ourselves means seeking the best for them in the same way that we seek our best for ourselves. And loving them as Christ loved us defines what is best for them. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Listen, I am the fulfillment. Everything that you need to have a meaningful life, to experience life in full, to know that, that your life will count and that you're safe and secure lies completely in me and my sacrifice for you. How does that flesh out? Listen, when you seek to love others, as you are finding that my commands to you 
are a joy for you, that you're able to have a relationship with the Father because of what I've done for you, and that the fruit that you're bearing, that I'm causing to bear within you, is growing and is multiplying. You're going to want that for others, and as you reach out to them, you're going to say, you're going to want some of this too. The way you find fulfillment and meaning in life, let me point you to Christ. And so we share with them Jesus. And Jesus says, I want them to know my commandments. I want them to know my Father. And I want them to have fruit. I want them to bear fruit. So my question to you this morning is, do, do you know this kind of love? This love that Jesus offers this love that says, I don't want my commands to be a burden to you. I want you to delight in them and that you do them because you love me. Do you know my Father? One that you can have a clear relationship with because of what I've done at the cross for you. I've paid your sin. I've carried your burden. You don't have to carry it anymore. You can go directly to the Father. And even the fruit, even the fruit, the long, strenuous hours at work and studies, what you're longing to have a, 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 a romantic relationship blossom, listen, nothing else can fulfill you except me. This is what he's telling his disciples. And this is what he wants his disciples to share with others. So this is what he's telling you. Do you want that? Let's finish off here. I feel like time's run out. So. Paul gives us an urgent word of gospel hope and encouragement for today. Verses 11 through 15 or 14 says this. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And the gospel has awakened you, so therefore don't be spiritually lethargic. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Church, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Friend, Jesus is coming soon. In church, as we live our lives in the already and not yet, we have an opportunity to live for him. He says, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have him. Put him on. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Listen, the hope of Jesus' promised return found in himself, the gospel, his work, gives us perspective in how we live our lives today in this world. It gives us perspective. 
Because it provides for us an impulse for what? For two things. For holiness and to love our neighbors with the same kind of love we've received. It tells us here that to put on Jesus, that we're supposed to live for Jesus, that all that we do say, I mean, that our lives are supposed to reflect the mercies that we've received. So as we trust Jesus, he says, as you trust me, trust me is putting on me. Put me on, man. I am yours. So that you can make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, to live for self. So if we've been legally clothed with Christ, how would we live life in a way that declares that clothing? Would people be able to say, man, that, that person's type of clothing is different. It's different from what I see, and that attracts me. That attracts me. The way they love other people, the way they submit, that's attractive. Jesus is saying, put me on. You have me. You have me. And it also fuels the fact that Jesus is coming again, and he's coming soon, where he will establish his kingdom. He'll, he, well, he's, he's established it, but where he's going <laughs> to, he's going to culminate it and bring it to perfection causes us to, to love others with urgency. It gives us the power, the desire for our lost brothers, for our lost sisters, not to be reactionary to society, to government, but to engage it, to shine a light to where need is needed, it needs to be fulfilled, to engage it and, and put skin in the game. These verses are called to action, given the shortness of our time. So what is really important? As Jesus reminds us that he will one day come back Brother and sister, what's really important? What will really last forever? The relationships that God has placed beside you are not by accident. Those are your neighbors. Those that will be coming, the 90 percentile of unchurched people who will be stepping into our building are not by accident. They are our neighbors. The family members that you're having a hard time loving how has Jesus loved you when you were least lovable, when we were once his enemy? That same kind of grace, that same kind of love. How does Jesus want you to love them? The time is coming. He will one day come. 